we've been going through uh, the Gospel of John, but starting this week, we're going to take a short break. Um, this is the beginning of Holy Week, like David said earlier uh, on the Christian calendar. This is Palm Sunday. And this is a week when we remember the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And next week, Pastor Michael, he's going to give us an Easter message. This week, I'm going to be talking about the suffering of Jesus. So on on the Sunday of Holy Week, we'll often focus on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this is what David was talking about during the call to worship. Uh, the the scripture that we got our call to worship from, these are a couple prophecies from the Old Testament. And though we won't be focusing on the triumphal entry today, I do want us to be thinking about it because this leads up to what we call the passion of Jesus. Passion is literally means suffering. So when we talk about the passion of Jesus, we're talking about the suffering of Jesus. And even though during the Palm Sunday, Jesus was greeted as a king during the triumphal entry, the expectations of the people, they were in the coming days completely dashed. Every movement, every element of Holy Week was orchestrated by God so that Jesus would be rejected and ridiculed and disgraced and ultimately murdered. Jesus, during Holy Week, he was plunged into suffering. And what I want to communicate to us this morning is that if we are followers of Jesus, it's our calling to follow him into suffering. The text today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. I'm going to ask you to turn there in your Bibles or you can just follow, follow along on the screen. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. So I've, over the past couple of weeks, I've seen um, uh, a quote posted on social media. Uh, this is a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Um, the Lord of, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, and I think this quote is appropriate to our time today. Uh, so there's, in the story, there's a point when Frodo, he is completely exhausted from the journey to destroy the ring. He and Gandalf, they are lost in the caves of Moriah, and it seems like all hope is gone. And this is what Frodo says to Gandalf. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf replies to Frodo, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in the world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. I imagine that many of us have the same sentiment as Frodo. Who would have thought even six weeks ago that things would be the way they are in the world right now? 
We wish none of this would have happened. But thank God, thank God that this pandemic is not all there is and that we have a voice that is wiser than the voice of Gandalf to tell us the truth. And this is the truth, that even though we may have no control over the situation, we do have a choice in how we'll respond. And my goal for the next few moments is to show us that as followers of Jesus, we're to live in the midst of suffering. We're to live in the midst of suffering, and we can do it with a clear purpose. So to do that, I have three points um, that are in your bulletin. The first is following Jesus into suffering. The second is entrusting ourselves to God in suffering. And finally, the healing that comes from suffering. So our first point, the book of First Peter was a letter written from the Apostle Peter to the early Christians. And during the first century, they were facing intense persecution for their faith. And though most of us aren't in a situation now where we are uh, persecuted for our faith in Jesus, all of us have suddenly been put into a situation where we're suffering now or the potential for suffering is far greater than it was a month ago. None of us would have placed ourselves in this situation, but we've been thrust into it just as Frodo was thrust into his terrible journey. Some of us have lost our jobs and our income. Some have been having an especially difficult time with the isolation and loneliness. Some are exhausted caring for our children and and taking care of them and teaching them all day every day with no end in sight. Some of us are racked with anxiety about the future. So what does this text have to say to us? Even though it was written to believers who were suffering from persecution, the principle in this passage is the same, that we should not be surprised at suffering or the prospect of suffering because to follow Jesus is to follow him into suffering. To follow Jesus is to follow him into suffering. Uh, if you've been with IGC for a while now, you know that our, our, our vision, our, our mission is to follow Jesus and to help others follow him. I want us to consider the first half of that statement. We're to follow Jesus. Now, this is an open-ended statement. Because when we're following Jesus, we're not walking along a defined path where we, where we, we can see all the way to the end. But if we really believe that Jesus is worth following, then he mu- it must be that he's worth following even when he leads us down dark and difficult paths. If we really trust him, then we must trust him even when he tells us to follow him into suffering. Imagine this, you, you have a friend of 20 years. You've known each other since you were children. You've had slumber parties at each other's homes. You've spent every weekend together just to hang out, just to enjoy each other's company. He was by your side when you were celebrating your happiest moments and he was with you crying during your lowest moments. You know each other's quirks. You know how the other person will respond to just about any situation. Every day you talk And one day you're at home when you hear your friend knock on the door 
and he tells you to get into the car and follow him. There isn't time to explain the situation, and he can't tell you where he's going, but you must go with him. Now, would you go with your friend? I think that you would, because you know his character. You know that he would never harm you. Over the years, he's shown by his actions and through his words that he's a trustworthy person. His love for you is true and genuine. And therefore, he would never ask you to do something that would cause harm to you. And this is a truth of the Christian life. That God will rarely tell you where exactly you're headed when you follow him. He doesn't tell us what's in store for the next five years or the next six months or even tomorrow. When Christ called you, he did not explain to you all the highlights and lowlights of the journey. He did not tell you how long each leg of the trip would be. He did not tell you what exactly it would cost you to be on that journey. But when you followed Jesus, you stepped onto a road that you would have never stepped onto left to yourself. You would not have stepped on that road unless you really believed that Jesus is worth following. If you're a follower of Jesus, by the grace of God, over however long your journey has been, you've come to better know him all the time that you have spent time with him in prayer, the scripture that you've read, all the, way, all the times you've studied him, you've spent time fellowshipping with other believers. And during all of these things, your capacity to trust and love Jesus has expanded. But even so, even so, you still don't know what life will look like if you follow him. And this is, of course, really frustrating at times because we want to know what's going to happen. We want to be able to prepare, to prepare ourselves for, for what is to come. But he doesn't tell us. And he doesn't always explain the reasons why he's putting us in the seasons that we're put into. He doesn't always explain to us why we're suffering. And I think the reason is this. The reason he withholds his plans and explanations from us is this. If we knew what lied ahead for us, we would trust ourselves rather than God because we would try to come up with our own ways of handling the situation. Or we might try to manipulate the situation so that it would go our way. Or perhaps we wouldn't even go down that road. And yet Jesus calls us. And therefore, we must conclude that in calling you to follow him, Jesus did not give you a destination or even a roadmap so much as he gave you himself. Why must we go through this pandemic? When will it end? How will we pay the bills? What kind of world will our children grow up in? We don't know. And that's okay. 
C.S. Lewis, looking back in the times when he felt most acutely the, the seeming absence of God, he wrote this, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? What other answer would suffice? Jesus is enough for us. Jesus is enough for us today. He's enough for us tomorrow. And if he really is trustworthy, and if he is worth following, then we can follow him wherever he leads us. That's why Peter writes in verse 21 of our passage, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus' suffering is an example for us to follow. So not only should we expect suffering in this life, but Jesus' followers can actively step into the suffering, knowing that God has a good purpose in it, even if we don't know what that purpose is. Pay attention to the way that Peter puts it in the passage. He says, we've been called to follow Christ's example of suffering. He has given us steps to walk in. To be human is to experience suffering. This is true of all people across all time. To be human is to experience suffering. But to be a follower of Jesus is to embrace suffering. And the good news is that we are not alone in our suffering. We are not alone. Verse 23 tells us that when Jesus suffered, he entrusted himself to God the Father. And this brings us to our next point, entrusting ourselves. So when we say that we're entrusting ourselves to someone, it means that we're giving ourselves over to that person. We put ourselves under their care. We let them assume responsibility for our own well-being. And even when things don't go the way that we want them to, we still believe that they will take care of us. And the text tells us that Jesus here, he entrusted himself to God. Jesus entrusted himself to God when he was abandoned by his friends, when he was being tortured, when he was stripped of all his dignity on the way to the cross, when he was experiencing agonizing pain on the cross. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. And you might remember the words of Jesus on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even then, even when the Father turned his face away from the Son, Jesus still entrusted himself to him. And so it may be with us if we follow Jesus into suffering. The pain may be excruciating. It may seem as if God is absent, or at least that he doesn't know what he's doing. And yet we can still entrust God, ourselves to God. We can entrust ourselves to the God that we do not always understand. If we continue on in the passage, verse 23, we see the basis that Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. And it's also the basis for ourselves to entrust ourselves to the Father. It's this, he judges justly. Jesus knew that the wrong that was done to him would not go unpunished, that there would be a recompense. 
Jesus knew that there was more to the story and that God would use the most evil act in all of history for the good of the world. Jesus knew this. And that's why he entrusted himself to the Father. And for us today, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that God is sovereign over this pandemic? Do we believe it? He's telling us he is sovereign over the microscopic virus. He is sovereign over the lockdown of nations. He is sovereign over the struggling political and economic systems. He's sovereign over our homes. He's sovereign over our families. He is sovereign. All these things are under his authority. And when Peter says that God judges justly, he's ultimately talking about the character of God. This is the basis for our entrusting ourselves into him. If you know that God is good, if you know that he's sovereign, we can entrust ourselves to him. We may not know why he's doing what he's doing, but we can believe that he's using this pandemic. He's using even this pandemic for our ultimate good and for his glory. And one day all things will be made right. We will have peace and joy if we go through tribulation and suffering. This is what Pastor Michael and I were talking about in our sermons the past three weeks. So we have to ask ourselves, will we entrust ourselves to God in this time, even though we can't make sense of it, even though the pain is so deep? One of the best examples of someone entrusting them to God is a man by the name of Takashi Nagai. Takashi Nagai was a resident of Nagasaki in the 1940s. And if you're familiar with the religious landscape of Japan over the past several hundred years, you may know that the majority of Christians were persecuted and killed for their faith by the governments. And by the mid-20th century, there were very few Christians that remained in Japan. Takashi Nagai was one of them. He married a Christian woman who lived in the suburb of Urakami in Nagasaki. And Urakami was a suburb where many of the Christians in Japan had settled. And the reason they were there is because through the centuries of persecution by the government, they were pushed into this little corner. Since the 1600s, the, the Christians in Japan were systematically persecuted and tortured for, and killed for their faith. Soldiers regularly tortured and killed believers in Japan. Thousands were crucified. Some were sawn in half. Some were crushed to death by vehicles. Some were thrown into boiling water until they died. And the suburb of Urakami was where Christians had suffered most in Japan. And many of them were pushed into this little corner in Japan. So Takashi Nagai lived there with his wife. On August 9th, 1945, Takashi was working in the hospital when an atomic bomb had was dropped on Nagasaki. And Nagai was spared because he was in the radiology lab, which was the safest part of the building of the hospital at that time. He survived. But estimates tell us that up to 70,000 other people in Nagasaki died with that blast. And there were countless others who were 
injured gravely and they, they succumbed to their injuries and the radiation poisoning in the coming months. And those who lived a few miles from the blast, they lived through it, but their skin was peeled completely off by the blast. The survivors, they were, were left to themselves with nothing. And as they tried to make sense of everything, as they walked through the neighborhoods, they saw complete and utter destruction. They saw mangled, burnt up bodies. And you can imagine not just the terrible physical trauma, but the psychological and emotional trauma for the people of Nagasaki. If you read the history books, you'll see that Nagasaki wasn't the original intended target when the bombers made its run. The intended target for this atomic bomb was the city of Kokura. But that day, due to poor weather, due to bad weather and poor visibility, the military decided at the last minute to drop the bomb on a secondary target of Nagasaki. And the pilots of the bomber, they used the steeple of the local church called the Yurikami Cathedral to guide the run. And at the very top of that steeple was a cross. They never intended for this to be the original target. Nagasaki was a secondary target that was chosen last minute, and they used a cross to guide them. The Christians of Nagasaki, they suffered terribly over the centuries by following the man who also died on a cross. And once again, on August 9th, 1945, the cross again would symbolize even greater suffering for those in Nagasaki. And Nagai, he, suffered, he, he survived the blast, and during this time, he was wondering what happened to his wife. But because he had to stay and care for the injured at the hospital, he was unable to leave for two days. And when he was finally able to leave, he found his destroyed home in the neighborhood. And he was only able to identify his wife as a pile of ash and bone. And as he shoveled her remains into a bucket, he saw a cross in what was once her hand. The Christians of Nagasaki, they held an open-air remembrance service a few days after the atomic bomb had dropped on them. And this was in the place of where the Urakami Cathedral used to be. And Nagai, he was given the opportunity to speak to the crowd. And he told them that he believed that God had chosen the bomb to fall on the Christians of Nagasaki. Not because they deserved it, but because for centuries the Christians had endured suffering and they identified with Jesus in their suffering. And those centuries of suffering had prepared them to suffer one more time as the atomic blast dropped on Nagasaki and its lasting effects. And he concluded when he was talking to this crowd that the Christians of Nagasaki had been chosen to give their lives so that the world would see the horrors of atomic warfare and so that it would never happen again. Now you can imagine the people in the crowd must have been scandalized by this. If you are disgusted by the thought of God choosing to drop this bomb, this, this weight of suffering on the Christians 
If you're disgusted by that, you should know that the crowd was also disgusted. As Nagai spoke, they tried to shout him down, but he continued, and this is what he said, Happy are those who weep, they shall be comforted. We must walk the way of reparation, ridiculed, whipped, punished for our crimes, sweaty and bloody. But we can turn our mind's eyes to Jesus carrying his cross up the hill of Calvary. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Central to his thinking was the image of the suffering Christ walking up this hill of suffering, Calvary, on that holy week. And just as Jesus had carried his cross and suffered, so too should we. This is our response when we see Jesus suffering. Our call is to embrace suffering, knowing that there is a purpose in it. Takashi Nagai, he lived another five years after the bomb had dropped on Nagasaki. And in that time, he continued to care for the sick and the dying. He shared his faith with whoever would listen. He wrote two books. One of them was to share his findings of the effects of radiation poisoning on the body. And the other book he wrote was called The Bells of Nagasaki. And this is him sharing his account of the situation and everything that happened in Nagasaki afterward. The book, Bells of Nagasaki, became a bestseller and it was eventually made into a movie. And the royalties from the the book, because they were substantial, they gave Nagai enough money to move far away. He could have left, but he chose to stay in Nagasaki so he could continue to minister and serve the people. And soon as the word of his story got out, people started visiting him. He started getting visitors First, it was Japanese citizens, and then it was Buddhist monks, and then it was Shinto priests, and then influential leaders from other countries as far away as the United States came. And even the emperor of Japan, this man who hated Christianity, he came to visit Nagai. So this is the life of Takashi Nagai marked by intense suffering. It was his experience of suffering that gave him the platform to speak hope and life to the world. He took seriously the message of the cross and he entrusted himself to God because there was nothing else that he could trust. And so I present this question to us as a church, Indelible Grace Church. Who will you entrust yourself to? In this pandemic, or your financial distress, or your difficult and strained relationships, or your health issues, who will you entrust yourself to? Our final point, if you look at verse 24, there's beautiful news here. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Consider this word healing and what it implies. A healing is a restoration to health. In order for healing to even be necessary, something has to be wrong. 
And the gospel says that there is something wrong with us. It's not merely physical. It goes far deeper. There is something profoundly, profoundly, deeply wrong with our hearts. There's something profoundly and deeply wrong with my heart. And here's what's wrong. We don't love what's ultimately good. Our view of ourselves and our regard for our creator, our maker is distorted. We don't honor him with our lives. We don't thank him for all the good in our lives. We make ourselves the point of reference for all the things in our lives. We make ourselves central. We evaluate ourselves and we judge others by our own preferences. The Bible calls this sin. And this has seeped into the deepest parts of you and me. We were sick unto death. And the text tells us Jesus died to heal us. Jesus died to heal us. By his wounds you have been healed. The suffering of Christ was for our sake so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. God loves you. God wants to restore you. And if we receive the free gift of life offered by Jesus, we will be healed. It might be slowly, but we will be healed. Take heart. Take heart. We will be cared for by our Heavenly Father. Our values and our affections will be transformed. We will begin to see that there's far more to the joys and suffering that we experience, that we experience in this world. And then we can not only endure suffering, but we can embrace it because we know that by it, God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the, to the things that are unseen. I will again acknowledge that the days ahead will be perhaps even more difficult. They may even seem impossible for us. But God is breaking us so he can heal us. I want to end with this passage from Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Will you pray with me? Christ, our only hope in life and death, we acknowledge our deep need of you. We are suffering, many of us. But I pray that you would shape us into people that can embrace the suffering, knowing that this comes from your hand as difficult as it may seem, but you break us so that you can heal us, God. So we ask for healing. We ask for healing, God. As we sing these songs, it is well with my soul. I pray that you would make this true of us. That even though we do not feel it in this moment, I pray that you would make these words true in our own lives. That our hope is in you, God.
Our hope is in you. Therefore, we can say it is well. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our rock and redeemer and healer. Amen.